and good evening everyone uh, tonight is a uh, one section of a segment that will start on November 15th a segment that's entitled first and second Thessalonians as we look at the, the purpose behind those two letters and that is preparing the brethren for the second coming of Christ Jesus so if, if you would, you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 24. We will be looking at verse 42. Matthew chapter 24, we will be looking at verse 42. I am not going to have uh, PowerPoints for this particular lesson. I will have them for future lessons. But this lesson is, as I said before, an introductory lesson, just to give us a good foundation for as we dig into each of those two letters that was written to the brethren there at the church of Thessalonica, but also because they were circulated and authenticated, they were also written to us today here in Anchorage in 2023. Would you join me in prayer, please? Our blessed Heavenly Father, we love you, Father, and we thank you. We thank you for each and every day, Father, that you bless us, Father, for each and every day where you give us an opportunity to live as you would have us live in your presence. But also, Father, as we live the way you would have us live, Father, as we prepare for the day that our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus returns to this earth. Father, we have no idea, no concept of when that will be. But, Father, we know we do have a promise. We have a promise that one day this will take place, whether in our lifetimes or after our lifetimes, this will take place. And in that glorious day, Father, we who are in Christ Jesus when we leave this life and in Christ Jesus when he returns, we will be reunited with him and spend an eternity with you and he in heaven. Father, these things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen. So if we turn our attention... Again, welcome everyone. As we turn our attention to Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 42, we hear the words of Christ Jesus to to the first century Christians, words that are reiterated as we go throughout the Bible, especially in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, as as Paul is trying to help those brethren there uh, stay true to the word, and as also he's attempting to help us stay true to the word as well. At Matthew chapter 24, at verse 42, the Bible reads, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, for if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. I think all of us can relate to what I'm about to say, whether you were raised by your parents, your grandparents, or whoever. When I was growing up, my grandparents always taught me to be prepared for the next day. They said, you're going to school tomorrow. Make sure you get your things out today. And to be honest with you, I'm grateful that my grandparents taught me that because I found when I joined the military, that was a concept that they had as well. We're always preparing for tomorrow. And in the military, it's more one of those things like we want to prepare by exercising the way we will fight the war tomorrow. Not that we wanted a war, but we wanted to be ready. So when I became a Christian, I also learned something, that this concept was evident there as well. Because I learned, I learned that in Christian living, this was a true point in our lives. As Christians, we must be prepared. We must be prepared, not just for tomorrow, not just for tomorrow. We must be prepared for when the day our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus returns, because when that day comes, when that day comes, 
there will be no tomorrow. So Paul's letters to the Thessalonians were written then for the purpose of encouraging these Christians to be ready, to be ready for that day and time, that last day when Christ Jesus would return, a day that could happen in their lifetime. But we find it didn't. This means that the last day could happen during our lifetimes, but not necessarily. But whether it happened in our lifetime or afterward, we do have this promise because that is our hope, that that day will come when Christ Jesus will return. So let's do a little background information here on on what's going on here. And what we want to do when we do this background, we want to talk about uh, Thessalonica, the city, as well as Thessalonica, the church, and a few places in between. So the Thessalonica that's mentioned in Paul's letters is actually the city today called Salonica, which is um, it's in southeastern Europe. It's between Romania and Bulgaria to the north, Yugoslavia and Albania to the west. It is, as it was in the first century, a port city. It's located in central Macedonia, Greece. It is located on the edge of the Aegean Sea. Today, it has a population of about 500,000. The city itself was originally built in 315 BC. It was built by the Macedonian king by the name of Cassander, and he named this city after his wife, who was the half-sister of Alexander the Great. So because of the location of Thessalonica, it was a natural seaport, and it was a main route from Rome to the east. It was the largest trading center in the region of Macedonia. At that particular time, it had a population of about 200,000. It was also located within, um, uh, let me see, within the in sight of Mount Olympus. And if you studied Greek mythology at all, you would know that Mount Olympus is a real mountain range. But you also know that in Greek mythology, they believe that all of their gods live there at Mount Olympus. Because of the location of Thessalonica, it became a wealthy city. It became a cosmopolitan city. And we find that many cultures converged on this city. You had the Romans there. You had the Greeks. But there was another group of people that lived there as well. There was a colony of Jews who lived and traded there and also built a synagogue where they could practice their ancient religion in the midst of a worldly, pagan, and wicked place. Now, the city itself, rather, I should say, it was in A.D. 51, or 51 A.D., when Paul found his way to this particular location. And he went there as a result of a vision or a calling, if you will. If you would go over to uh, Acts chapter 16, uh, verse 6. And we're going to be in Acts for a while. We're going to be, next we're going to be at, at verse 11, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 17 at verse 1. So, again, the church was established approximately 51 A.D., and at this particular time, Paul was on his second missionary journey. And the book of Acts 
recounts the events that took place with the establishment of this congregation there at Thessalonica. And what we have when we look at Acts 6, uh, 16 verses 6 through 10, what we have is Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They, again, they are traveling on a second missionary journey. They're in the process of strengthening the churches that they had already established, churches that were established during their first missionary journey. And in Acts chapter 16 at verse 6, the Bible reads, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia to help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. We're going to be going back in a moment to verse 11. So after seeing this vision, after receiving this vision, what did they do? Immediately, you might say, they took their foot off first and headed to second, if you will. They crossed the Aegean Sea and made their way to Philippi. Now, in Philippi, um, they experienced a, a variety of events that happened with them, but they also established a church there. So we continue at chapter 16, at verse 11. The Bible reads, we'll be going to verse 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Sumatras, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. And one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be fruitful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Next, we're going to be over in Acts chapter 17 at verse 1. Acts chapter 17 at verse 1. So, so we see then that Paul spent about a month there uh, before he was chased out of, uh, before he was chased out of, uh, wait a minute, I, mean, I got ahead of myself. So I should say later on we read that their present and activities, it actually stirred up a riot. There were people got very upset. We see that as verses 16 through the end of uh, chapter 16 there. Uh, they were thrown in jail. They were miraculously released. And, uh, after gaining their freedom, they traveled about 100 miles south of, of Philippi uh, to the city of Thessalonica. So Thessalonica, when we think about that, that church there, we see in chapter 17 that Luke recounts the church being planted in those verses that I talked about, and he describes the further troubles that were encountered by the missionaries there. So when we turn our attention to chapter 17, the Bible says, now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and 
Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, and did, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. And the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. So what we have here is Paul spent about a month here in this city before he was chased to neighboring Berea, which was about 50 miles to the west. That was not a lot of time to do a lot of teaching. Just think about it, 30 days, and you're talking about something as deep as Christ Jesus coming to this earth, suffering and dying, being resurrected and returning again, and what you need to be to do to be prepared for that. That wasn't a lot of time. So, but from there, uh, what we find is Paul spent some time in Berea. He was teaching uh, before moving on to Athens in southern Greece. And he left Timothy and Silas in Berea while he traveled on to Athens. And while in Athens, he did make some converts. He even taught some of the, uh, he preached on Mars Hill and he taught some of the uh, Athenian philosophers. And this is also recorded in Acts at chapter 17. So he soon left Athens and he headed to the city of Corinth in Greece. And he spent 18 months in Corinth. And it was during this time that he was in Corinth, those 18 months is when he wrote these two letters to the Thessalonians. Now, one thing we have to keep in mind is this right here. We know that the word of God, you know, we say all scripture is God breathed. So we know all the word, this scripture is, is the inspired word of God. And what we find when we look at this is God did not just one day sit down and go, okay, Paul, I want you to write something. But rather, when, when, these, when, 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 when Paul and Peter and those individuals were writing, what we find is that they were writing by inspiration and they were writing for a purpose. So we get down then to the point of what was the occasion? What drove God to inspire Paul to write what he wrote here, to write First and Second Thessalonians, to write this to the church there. So let's get to that occasion. Once Timothy arrived in Corinth, he came there to see Paul. He gave Paul reports on the, on the young churches that they had established previously. But then there was a change, you might say, in the, in the thought process. When it came to Thessalonica, it was a little bit different. First of all, Timothy brought news that those young Christians there, they were being persecuted because of their faith, and they were doing well because of that. But then he said, some of them have died. 
Some of them have died, and you think that's a natural process. People born, people live, people die. But what he said was that because some had died and Christ Jesus had not returned, there was confusion. There was confusion because their mindset in that short period of time that Paul was there, their mindset that this group of people that are in this church here at Thessalonica, before they die, they're going to see Christ Jesus return. And he didn't. So they were trying to figure out what is going on here. So you see, Paul had taught them. He had taught them that Jesus would return, but, but they hadn't considered that we might not live long enough. Just like in our day, you know, we become Christians. We come out of the waters of baptism, but there's no guarantee that before we breathe our last breath, Christ Jesus is going to appear. Because of the word of God and what we can read in places like First and Second Thessalonians, we don't have to be concerned about that as much as they were in that, in that same regard. So, Paul, who not long ago had established this church, he now needed to do something in order to calm their fears. But not only calm their fears, he needed to provide further instruction, if you will, of what they needed to be doing to prepare for the second coming of Christ Jesus. And the neat thing about it is this. As we read this and we're seeing what they needed to be doing, it's the same thing that we need to be doing. Now, I do have a couple of questions in a moment. So the Thessalonian letter, then, when we look at it, what we find about it is it is the earliest full discussion related to the second coming of Christ Jesus and the resurrection of the saints. This is the first full discussion that we will find in the Word of God in the New Testament before we get to the book of Revelation. And what we also find about this, these two letters, First and Second Thessalonians, is that the scholars have no doubt concerning the, author, the authorship of these two letters. Paul lists himself as the author in the beginning, but not only that, not only that, Historians note that these two particular letters were widely distributed and accepted by the early churches. And these are two points that are necessary to prove the authenticity and inspiration of, of, of the New Testament documents. So in this, these two letters, and let's go back just to the first one. In this model epistle, 1 Thessalonians, when examining the various growing, I mean, it's a model letter, I should say, when we go about the business of examining the growing pains of a young church, but at the same time, the growing pains of a new convert to Christ because individuals have growing pains as well at when we become Christians. So the Thessalonian congregation had been established and had been taught in a span of a few weeks, a span of a few weeks. And like Brother Guyan Wood said, and I never forget what he said, it took him a lifetime to gather the knowledge and the wisdom that he's getting from the Word of God, from about God. So just think, they only had a few weeks. 
Now they are facing persecution, but not only that, they are confused about doctrine itself, especially concerning the second coming of Christ Jesus. So again, Paul writes to them. He writes to them because he wants to calm their fears, but he also wants them to understand something that they didn't have enough information on initially so that they could understand it and wouldn't be so confused as they were. So he wanted to provide them more information. He wanted to provide them more teaching, and the best way to do this was in First and Second Thessalonians. So this letter, First Thessalonians, it deals with three main ideas that make up the body of the letter. Now, when we look at these three main ideas, this is what we're going to find. On the one end of these three main ideas, we're going to find, you might say, a bookend, if you will, a salutation and a greeting. And at the other end, what you're going to find is encouragement or exhortation and a final greeting. And these three main ideas are sandwiched between those. So if we had to break First Thessalonians down into and put it in outline form, what we will find is this. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, we will find Paul's prayer of thanksgiving. Chapter 2 through chapter 13, uh, 3, verse 13, we find Paul defending his conduct for the way he behaved when he was among them. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, Paul encourages the Thessalonians to pure conduct, to pure living. And then at chapter 4, verse 13 through chapter 5, verse 3, Paul reveals Jesus' teaching concerning the end time, the end time being when Christ Jesus returns. And then finally at chapter 5, verses 4 through 28, Paul instructs the church on how they are to live and the things they are to do as they prepare for Christ Jesus' return. So as we go through this brief first letter then, starting on the 15th of uh, of November, we will see some things that Paul is trying to uh, instill in their minds and in their hearts. Now, the first one is this right here. He wants to express his feelings toward them. Okay, it is more than just saying, I like you guys, I love you guys. So in the opening section, we will see Paul expressing his joy. We will see him expressing his gratitude for what? For their fidelity for their loyalty, not just toward him, but toward his helpers. They were a young church. Paul hadn't been with them that long. However, they were faithful in many ways despite all of the attacks they were coming up under, all the persecution that was happening to them as a result of the faith that they had. Share something with you. A great reward for ministers, a great reward for ministers is this. It is seeing the faithfulness and the growth of members. I remember talking to Brother Wilbur Woldridge a long time ago. He taught, he and Brother Ray Raymer taught Barbara and I the gospel. And this was some 10 years later. And it just so happened there was a gospel meeting at South Anchorage. And the brother who was doing the gospel meeting, Brother Wilbert, had taught the gospel about five years before he met Barbara and I. And all the trials and tribulations that Brother Wilbert had experienced, he said something to us. He, he was so joyful that, that he can say two of the people that he took the time to sit down with and teach the gospel, they were both preaching the gospel. 
And that indeed brought him great joy. So Paul spends time in this letter. Um, so so let, let me back up a second. So with that said, we talked about the reward of this, all of this, right? Well, there's a downside. Nothing kills the zeal of a preacher or missionary or even a teacher more than unfaithful Christians. That's why many leave to go to other places to seeking new fields of harvest, seeking more uh, faithful or fruitful Christians. The next thing Paul had to do was defend himself. After his departure, there were some who accused Paul of being insincere. They accused him of being a fraud. And if you never experienced that, when you are working diligently within a group, within a congregation, there's nothing that hurts more, and I've been there and done that, than someone who's not doing half of what you're doing, accusing you of being insincere, accusing you of being a fraud. You have to look at them and go, if I'm insincere and I'm a fraud for doing this, what does that make you who's not doing it at all? But it, it does hurt. So Paul spent time in his letter defending his conduct. He shouldn't have had to, but he did. So let me ask you this question. What is the best way We're at Anchorage Church of Christ on Devar Road. Right? Right? So what is the best way to cause division in Anchorage Church of Christ on Devar Road? What is the... Go ahead. Criticizing the elders. Having elders for roast on Sunday. What else? Anybody else? It's not just the elders. You can do it with the deacons. You can do it with the teachers. You can do it with each other. That is the best way to cause division because what you're trying to do is get a posse. You're trying to get a posse to follow you. And once you get that posse to follow you, that posse will follow. It doesn't matter what you're saying is accurate or not you get them to come to your side. So again, the best way to cause division in a church, in a congregation, is to attack the leaders, to attack the teachers, to attack one another. And when we look back at the church there at Thessalonica, that, ex- that is exactly what was happened to Paul and those other, those other men who were with him. You have these people who come in, they were jealous, and that's what they were doing. They were putting out these false accusations, they were putting out these false lies, but it's like anything else. You say it enough, what happens? If I told you, Russ was the worst guy in the world, and I said it 50 times, somebody's going to start to believe Russ is the worst guy in the world. He doesn't have to be, but I've heard it so many times, it must be true. But that doesn't make it true, and people know that, so people play on that. The next thing Paul does, he encourages them. Their new faith was being tested. And many were being tempted to return to their to their pagan their pagan lifestyles with this sexual immorality. 
when we look at the amount of people that have lived in the world since the first century, let's go with back, just back to the first century. When we look at the amount of people who lived in the world since the first century, what we find is this, that not many of them have actually begun a Christian life. Now, let's take that small number. Then you go to the next step. When you look at that small number that became Christians, we find that even fewer people finish. Why do you think even fewer people finish their walk of faith? You started, James started out being a Christian, and somewhere between James started and James dying, James stopped being a Christian. Why? I know you think, well, that's a personal thing about James, but, but there is something that's in there that applies to everyone. And you said, James, that's like a trick question. But it's not. Anybody want to mess with it? How about this? We don't expect to be tested. We think we come out of the waters of baptism, we got it made. We're never going to have any trials. We're never going to have any tribulations. I went in with cancer. I came out cured. I went in smoking. I came out a non-smoker. I went in a drug addict. I came out a non-drug addict. I went in a liar. I came out telling the truth that so much I couldn't stop myself. But none of that happens. You go into the waters of baptism with cancer, you're coming out with cancer. You go in there, liar, you're going to come out a liar. You're going to have to work on that. Cancer is cancer. It's a disease. Sometimes we survive it. Sometimes we don't. But you see, Paul encourages them. He encourages them regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what happened to you, regardless of all the trials, all the tribulations, regardless of all of that. What he's saying is this right here. Remain faithful to Christ. Remain faithful to Christ. So if Paul is saying that... To the brethren there in the first century, to the church there at Thessalonica, and that letter is circulated through that congregation and all other churches around, and even to this day in the inspired word of God, what we call the Bible, he's still saying it to us because we are no different from them. We are no different from them. So Paul does something else in this letter. He gives them further teaching on two critical areas. Number one is this right here. He gives them details concerning the second coming of Christ Jesus. And when we look there in First and Second Thessalonians, you see this, this point uh, reiterated 20 times in those two letters. But then he also tells them something else. He talks to them about sanctified living. You see, the reason that Christ Jesus is coming back is for who? Who is he coming back for? I'm sorry. The saved. The saved. Those who are doing the best they can to live sanctified lives. Lives that are set apart from the world. So that is the whole reason he's teaching them that the second coming is the reason for this purified living. You live this way, and Christ Jesus, when he returns, he will claim you. Paul explains this in more detail. And there's one other point Paul wanted to cover with them. It had to do with fellowship. It had to do with fellowship. That thing we do 
at the end of service where we stand around all over this place and we're talking to each other. We're standing out in the foyer, we're talking to each other. In the summertime, we might even be outside on the grass with the kids playing and the adults are standing there talking out in the parking lot. It's called fellowship. Paul encourages them and sends greetings to maintain love and fellowship between his group and these young Christians. But he also saying the same thing to us. Are we always going to agree? No. Never. Never. I tell you guys a story all the time. When I was a little boy growing up, we used to fight like cats and dogs, just going to school in the morning. Then somebody had noticed the clock. Oh, my goodness, we're running late. Press ourselves off and they go on the street laughing and talking and hugging each other like they were never fighting. Ten minutes earlier, they were, tr- they were trying to knock each other's lights out. But we were a family. We're going to disagree. <laughs> we're going to disagree, but we are a family. And we should never let disagreements take us to the point where we do not act as Christians. Because when we do that, when we go back to what Paul is trying to teach us here through First and Second Thessalonians, we're missing the mark. We're missing the mark. And that's something we can't afford to do. You know... I'm a, I was a president, I was, I'm now acting secretary for Homeowners Association. And there's a gentleman there, nothing makes this man happy. He can't call you. For an educated man, he know more four-letter words than he know anything else. And sometimes, brethren, I'm be honest with you, I see us acting just like him. I'll <laughs> be honest with you. Sometimes I see us acting just like him. But what I know is this right here. A lot of people comes to a point where they don't want to be around him because of that stuff. And it can happen here too when we're acting like that. People don't want to be around us either. Our brothers don't want to be around us. Our sisters don't want to be around us. Not that we don't love each other. But we're saying, if I got to fight with you every time I come around you, I'd just rather stay over here. Because I don't come to church to fight. I come to church to love. I come to church to encourage. I come to church to be encouraged. And that's what Paul keeps trying to drive home with First and Second Thessalonians. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Encourage one another. Build one another up. Build one another up. Build one another. Love one another. Love one another. We got to help each other with this walk of faith. We got to help each other get to heaven. It's not a trip we go on our own. There's a reason. It's more than one person in the church. And there are reasons we are multiple personalities. But that's okay. That's okay. Now, I'm doing something a little bit different in this lesson. Uh, starting, I'm going to start it tonight, actually. And then I'm going to continue it uh, starting November 15th. I've already talked to Tracy. Tracy said, you can do this, James. I, I love that response. You can do this, James. What I want to do is the devotional after each lesson is going to be a short summary of that lesson. I'm not going to repeat what we just said by no means, but it's a summary of that lesson to encourage us. And that's what I'm going to do tonight. It takes about three to four minutes, if that long. But it's, 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 it's more like an encouragement of what we just talked about to help us continue to go forward in our walk of faith. So with that said... 
we'll finish up with that summary in a, in a few minutes. So any questions or comments before we end tonight? All right. Well, thank you all for being here. I look forward to kicking this off on uh, November 15th as we dig into 1 Corinthians, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And uh, again, keep this in mind with what we're doing with this lesson. This lesson was written, the occasion for writing this lesson was to calm fears of those there in the church in, first, in the first century, but also to encourage them to faithful living as they prepare themselves for the return of Christ Jesus the second time where he returns to this earth apart from sin to claim those who are faithful unto death thank you for being here tonight